Welcome to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. In every episode, we bring you insights into the teams behind the teams in professional football. Coming up on today's episode. I was just open and honest that, you know, I think it could be time for me to step away at the end of the season. Um, so it wasn't just thrown on him and the club end the season. We've been having these discussions, which for me makes him that, that bit more special. He's got that real emotional connection and, and gets it. So we're joined today by Stephen Reid. Stephen was a player of some repute, uh, playing more than 400 professional games and representing the Republic of Ireland 23 times. Since his playing career, he's gone on to forge an impressive career in coaching as well, uh, working as a first-team coach with Reading, Crystal Palace, West Brom, Scotland and Nottingham Forest. Last week, Stephen announced that he was setting up his own consultancy to help players with leadership, confidence and well-being. Thank you very much for joining us today, Stephen. No, pleasure to be on, Simon. Thanks for having me on. The new role that you're going to have, it seems to have struck a real chord with a lot of players and coaches. It has, and that's one of the key bits, really. And it, the, the main focus of it has been almost from a player's point of view, which a lot of the, the story was about. But obviously, my experiences over the last seven years in the coaching world, I think it's an issue that strikes right across the board. You know, when you're a player, you've obviously in the building for a, a much shorter period of time. And, and you can actually say that as a, as a coaching staff member and staff in general in football clubs, they're often the ones that are, are at the forefront of the time spent at the training ground and dealing with a lot of the pressures that, you know, elite football and elite sport can compose. We've covered a lot about specialist coaches. So, you you know, throwing coaches, set piece coaches and so on. But I'd, I've not known of any specialists in this area. There are things in place, but it's probably quite an unusual step for someone in my, you know, coaching career so far and playing career that has actually made the step and the jump, given that we've just been promoted to the Premier League to step out of it and go in a different direction. But... Mm. This is what I've wanted to do for a long time. And, and I feel this is now becoming more of a passion for me than the other side. And how will it actually work, do you think? Will you go into clubs and get employed by clubs or will players come to you? How do you see that working? You know, my immediate thinking is I want to help individual players. I want to help them develop and, and achieve and hopefully manage their, their own thought processes and, and thinking patterns as, as well as staff because I've often found in my seven years coaching it's quite often a lot of time it's the staff members and coaches and that are, that are struggling that are taking on so much responsibility often the pay isn't great you know often you're worried about losing your job the security your family situation so it's often the staff that almost get overlooked in this whole you know, field. But yes, yeah, so ultimately, I want to help the individual. Um, I think there will be some work with organisations, you know, PFA, FA, Premier League, um, on a mentorship course with the LMA as well in in leadership and, and mentoring, and, you know, just to give maybe my advice and my thinking of, of, of what's needed. So I can see that. I can, I can also see going into clubs and maybe presenting what I've put together on my own experiences and hopefully normalising that. And if it's three or four players in that group that might connect with a couple of the issues that I've had, that then maybe might want to delve into it a little bit more, or it might even just be. And also what I found in doing this piece is people have kind of connected and it's actually made them feel like it's okay you know, just by me actually putting it out there. So for some, that might be enough just to realise that they're not on their own in this, that other people feel it. I've had the career that I've had as a player and a coach, but I've been through this and you can achieve and you can get through it with the right support. You did a brilliant interview that came out yesterday with The Times with Henry Winter, which quite a lot of people might have seen. Um, and I think there were a lot of themes there that I do 
hear about from coaches, but maybe that people don't articulate? A lot of the piece was was around the playing side, but in terms of what I spoke about, the imposter syndrome, which manifested itself into the coaching for me was, you know, pretty much on a daily basis would be, you know, is my, is my part of the session right? Is the area size right? Is the timings right? Are the players going to have it? Is it right for the manager? You know, was the session good enough? You know, beat myself up constantly, even if it was a, a passing drill or a 10-minute block of possession that I'm, you know, that I'm leading. It was just my way of thinking a lot of the time was to, I guess that perfectionism part of me in most things that I've done, almost to a, an unhealthy level, and when you're doing that day after day from, you know, middle of June through till the following May, it is a real, it can be a real tough, real tough, tough season year on, you know, year on year. I, mean, I think that's something that a lot of us can identify with, you know, and I've had that as well. Um, I, I suppose seeing the comments about you, for the players and the coaches wouldn't have thought that, you know, you've had all positive feedback but it's like obviously a voice in your head telling you that sometimes yeah no for sure it's I've had messages off teammates that that wouldn't have known I've had messages from a lot of people in sport that have felt the same way it's almost it almost seems to me the the majority of people you know more so than than not have got that you know, obviously there's different levels of it, but I think there's always in high achievers, I'm finding that there is a little bit of that. I mean, although it has been tough, a tough thing to deal with, I think it's also been, it can almost be a super strength that it kind of pushes you on and you kind of builds that resilience to go again and get through it and to prove yourself, you know, to prove yourself, you know, right, really, that you are good enough to be there. So it's those reminders constantly. And a lot of these things are the things that have driven me on, you know, through my playing career, through my coaching career. It's just when it gets to a level that it is affecting your mental health and you do burn out and you do need that break away from the game. That's when it becomes an issue that you do need to talk to someone about it. You do need to, because mm. I used to feel it. I used to sort of feel when it was coming, um, you know, the mental health side of things was building all the anxiety, all the stress. And, you know, I've got a counsellor that I would maybe check in with um, every so often when I felt that or a couple of couple of trusted mentors that I've got as well, just to sort of take you out, out of that bubble that you sometimes find yourself in and actually just to allow someone to give you a different perspective and a different point of view. I suppose it's a bit of a balance really, isn't it? Because the opposite of that maybe is complacency where you wouldn't have trained as hard as a player maybe, or as a coach, it's kind of made you prepare very thoroughly and really totally. give it everything. But yeah. I totally agree because with that, then I'd make sure that I was super organised, that we're out setting up early, that the area size is right, that the session is down and, we know exactly what we're doing and who's taking what. It's, mm. It gives you that organisation and professionalism as well. Mm. But it's just such a fine line between that and when it just tips the other way. And that might be a bad run of form of the team where then it goes into an, un an unhealthy level where you're kind of putting all the blame on yourself and was the session right during the week? Was the information right in the session? Was the information that we're giving to or I'm giving to the players before the game was that right have we done enough did we work on that set piece enough and then it's just this a spiral of things that especially when things are not going well on the pitch that can really affect you off it and how would that manifest itself then would you be exhausted at night and just feel burned out because of that it's a bit one of the strangest ones for me after games as a coach was that I could sleep really well as a player. I just, no chance the adrenaline, the buzz, but as a coach, I think because of that emotional side of it, how much it used to drain that you, you your body almost shuts down after games and, and I used to fall asleep quite easily. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it was, it was, it was so tough to 
sort of to deal with that, especially on top of that, is living away from home. You know, you throw that into the mix as well, especially with staff, coaches, support staff. Often it's, well, we can't move because we don't know whether we're going to be around, whether it's three months, six months or long term. Family settled in a certain area. Um, you don't want to disrupt that. It's not like when you've got a playing contract and you sign a three-year deal when you know pretty much you're going to be there for three years. From the staff contract's point of view, it's completely different where more often than not, it's families and, and staff living away from each other. And, and when you factor in some of these challenges and not maybe having that close support network around, around you close by, that can sort of add fuel to the fire. That's been a real eye-opener, actually, for me, covering the coaches and the staff a lot um, for the last few years because it's a very transient profession, really, isn't it, where you could lose your job through no fault of your own because the manager gets sacked or moves on. Um, like you say, living away from home a lot. And that must be very difficult as well, not to have that stability or security as a coach. Yeah, that's tough. And especially if you're not loving what you're doing as well you know I think I got to a point where I started to question you know for, for some years now the enjoyment of the game the the actual fun in the game because that was always as kids you get into it because you you love it you, you enjoy it you have fun in it and I think for me once it did become professional and I did make my first team debut and it became about the results, about the appearances, about the pressures, the expectations, and obviously that's grown with social media as well. That almost took away something in me, that love of the game and that enjoyment of the game. Um, and you go further down the line, it got to a point where, you know what, am I loving this enough to, to be one, sticking with it, two, living away from the family, and three, I'm actually enjoying a different side of it that I can maybe see mm. a, a path going down that route, which I've been doing. I've been sort of educating myself and done my opening counselling course with the PFA and uh, on a mentorship course now. So over the last few years, I've really tried to plan in what I want to do because after I left Crystal Palace for, yeah, before 2018, I kind of just needed to get out. You know, I was very, probably the word would be burnt out. I I just couldn't go back in that pre-season because of how I was feeling emotionally. So I did some real work on myself at that point, but a few months down the line, it was almost a fear of, you know, what am I going to do? You know, what is next? You know, is this, is this all I am? Is this all I can do? Is, is it just football? Um, and then the phone rings and, okay, you're, you're back in. And I've had some great experiences, but this time around, I've kind of planned a little bit more. I spoke to people, I've done a couple more courses and, and feel like now's the right time to, to really pursue this one. Is there a fear of that in football, do you think, of stepping away? Probably a lot of people do want to step away for a bit, but you then worry about not being relevant anymore, being forgotten, the game moving on without you. And I hear quite a few people say that again. Yeah, that's true. And it, it, and it's true that when you're in it, the phone's going all the time. When you're out of it, the phone calls dry up. Um, but I've been advised a lot, even when I left Crystal Palace, I spoke to a couple of people and it was, you know, stay in the game, stay in the game. And But it comes a point where actually you need to look after yourself and look after your own well-being and look after your family because if you work in that way and you're feeling that way you're no good to to anybody if you stay on and carry on in the in at the club the players will smell it there's you know people around you'll realize and then you're not going to be you're not going to be useful to the ones that matter the most in your family and that's part of the reason why i made that decision um so obviously the decisions come around again and it's been a tough one because of the Premier League and, you know, up to three, four days after the playoff final, I, you know, I'm thinking, how can you 
you know, how can you walk away from another year in the Premier League? But once things had settled down, I stuck with my guns, you know, went with my heart um, and, and made that not leap of faith, but, you know, well-planned, hopefully transition into, into something that I think just might give me that little bit more purpose and, and fulfilment. Does this feel very different stepping away from club football now than, than it did at Palace a few years ago? Yeah, I'm in a I'm in a really good place now. Um, when I left Palace, I, I was struggling. You know, I was just it was a flight back from holiday actually. When I just was whatever I was watching on the plane on the way back, and I just had this overwhelming feeling that I just just can't go back in. You know, I was sort of almost that low and riddled with anxiety and and wanting to take a breather that. It was just, I, I have to take a, a step away from this. And this time around, I'm just in a really good place. I've been having these sort of chats with with Steve with Steve Cooper, you know, most of this year. I mean, even when, when, when Chris left, when Chris left last September, it was a, with how I am and how I work, I always find that, that change of manager, that's always been a real challenge for me with how I think as well in getting to know a new manager, you know, what's it going to be like? Are they having me? That imposter syndrome kicking in a little bit, you know, when he speaks a certain way, what does he mean by that? In that, that whole getting to know you period as a coach or member of staff can be a real challenge. And at that, at that time, I thought, um, I'd possibly be moving on with with Chris and the staff as well, but I'd, I'd already built a little bit of a relationship with Steve through a couple of previous seasons when he was at Swansea, and he's he's a top guy, you know, really, you know, emotionally intelligent, um, excellent, obviously at what he does, and you know, I, I enjoyed enjoyed his company and the staff that he brought in were were great. We had a good good rapport in the in the in the office um but we've been having this discussion most of this year about my plans going forward obviously things were going really well contracts up in the summer and i was just open and honest that you know i think it could be time for me to step away at the end of the season um so it wasn't just thrown on him and the club end the season we've been having these discussions which for me makes him that that bit more special. He's got that real emotional connection and and gets it completely. Gets it. We had Tom Corden, who's the first team performance analyst. Yeah. I think it's his title. He was on one of our webinars a few months ago and superb. And um, I was quite struck. He played a video of Lewis Graben actually leading the analysis with uh, mm-hmm. one of the players. And I think that's still quite unusual. And it seemed that the players are empowered at the club and they are listened to. And that, that's a big part of how Steve operates. Yeah, well, that's the almost utopia when you've got players leading each other. Um, but yeah, that was obviously grabs his being a top, top striker at this level for, for a long time. And, you know, those little nuggets of information and and detail to, to Keenan were invaluable. I'm not having him take all the credit for that Keenan goal, by the way. I, said, I did say to Grabs on the Monday, I went, you do know I've been doing a bit with Keenan for the last couple of months. So you ain't taking all the credit. But it, it was fantastic. And, and I quite enjoyed my conversations with the senior players like Grabs, you know, prodding them a little bit into what they're going to be doing next. And are they thinking about what they're going to do next? Can't just finish and you know, sit on the beach for, for the rest of your life. You need to sort of stay active and, you know, what you're offering grabs is, is, is brilliant and showing a real, a real uh, interest in the coaching side of it. So those conversations in a way are the sort of bits of the well-being, the leadership and the, and the confidence that are the discussions that I enjoy the most in, in talking to the players and, seeing what's going on in their personal lives, if they settled in, how's the family, you know, those are the bits that I used to come away from feeling more purpose and more fulfillment. Um, obviously, hence, hence sort of the step into that direction. 
that struck me quite a bit, actually, in other conversations I've had with other practitioners, um, how important the person is. Obviously, like Tony Strudwick was saying, when the player's coming in the morning, he doesn't want to just start testing them or getting their well-being, uh, yeah, well-being scores straight away. He wants to talk about how you're doing, how's your life, you know, and have that human connection. I remember I did a conference, I think it was a catapult conference in, in London. I, I sort of sat on the panel and Strudders was on it with a, a few others. And, you know, one of the, it was like a sort of really young, you know, practitioner there, probably looking to get into the sports science world. And I think his question to Strudders was about, you know, what processes and what systems you put in place to check on the players' uh, physical stats and well-being and all these different things that he said. And Strudders just said, I'd just ask him. <laughs> and it sort of cuts through a lot of the, not the nonsense, because all those bits of information are, you know, crucial into in, into what we do in uh, a football club. But actually, there's nothing beats asking one of the players or staff, how are you doing? How are you feeling? You know, what do you feel you need? How did you sleep? Like just actually just getting that conversation and dialogue mm. into not only the information that you need, but building the relationship with that player and with the or staff member, you know, just getting that feel. It's not just, right, iPad, mm. you know, click that. Is it a, you know, one to 10 score? you know, sleep, sometimes it is that looking in the eye, you know, what do you, what are you feeling? You know, is this player looking a little bit more tired? Is he, you know, look like he's carrying something? They're the way that you build the relationships alongside, obviously, all the processes that the football clubs have in place now. We did a piece with uh, Barry Drust and he was saying there's a risk of 24-hour surveillance now with players, he called it, yeah. where everything is getting monitored and there's scores for. So your sleep, what you eat, your fat levels, your training, heart rate, you know, GPS. Do, do you think there is a risk of that where they're just getting monitored all the time? It is full on now. It is full on. When I look back at my playing career and more so, you know, probably second half of it where, you know, the big one for me was when Prozone came in when I was at, Blackburn and Mark Hughes and staff, that was a massive part of our success and what we did. So that was the the start. That was the start of it, you know, structured training sessions when it started to be about around the four-minute blocks and and your resting work and everything like that. But now we do need to be careful because I think with all of this stuff that we're doing, for me, you can suck a bit of the enjoyment out of it, a bit of the fun of actually going to play football. You know, when you're monitored constantly and, you know, it's the pre-ab, it's the re-ab, it's the exercise, it's directly after a game. You know, players doing, you know, sort of quite intense strength work after a game. And sometimes it's about the feel. It's not about the numbers. It's about, right, we might need to do this, but actually we've just got beat in that game. So maybe we'll leave the Nordics or the Copenhagen exercises for, you know, recovery day tomorrow or I think we need to still go back to a lot of a bit more feel than just ticking boxes all the time in my opinion because you know it's about it's about having fun as well do you think social media has become a massive pressure as well is it true that players are looking on twitter after games to see what people are saying about them and things like yeah, that no doubt they will be. And and that's, again, what you just said there, Simon, about the 24-hour nature of of it. Again, sort of beginning of my career, you would play the game and you would, and that would kind of be it until the next day. But now, especially for the, you know, top, top-end players that have got millions of followers, they, they're quick, they could pick their phone up and it will be a 24-hour cycle of, of messages and communication and so it's very hard and and I get it that's that's the way of the world a little bit now and the social media side and and that but you you do also need to be a certain way to be able to deal with that that needs a real strength of character to be able to deal with some of the abuse with some of the comments that they're getting on a regular basis and 
you need to switch off from the game as well, you know. And with with social media, it's becoming very difficult for for players these days to actually get away from the game, which I think you need to do. You need to have something else in your life, which maybe one of my biggest downfalls was partly due to injury and I couldn't always physically do something else, but it's actually just switching off from the game completely, um, thinking about what might be next and, you know, maybe educating yourself in a different way because having been on the coaching side and playing side, you have got the time, that's for sure, when you're a player to do whatever you want to do. Is it the same as a coach as well that it's hard to switch off? Probably, I think... I found I found it more so in a way. I think mentally I found playing a lot tougher. The performance, the preparation, and obviously physically towards the end was very difficult. Mentally now I'm actually ending up being quite relaxed on a match day as a as a coach. You know, you've done your work during the week, we're prepared, but you switched on, I find, more of the time. Even when we, you know, after a game good result we win the game you know we have maybe a beer with the opposition manager after the game in the office but then within an hour it's we're sending messages to each other numbers for tomorrow what's the session look like on to Tuesday night's game maybe thinking about your set plays or I I did attacking set plays uh, this season and Alan Tate did defensive ones I'm already maybe getting home from the game and starting watching the report that the analysts would put on our laptops already, just drip feeding already. So you're never completely switching off from it. If it's a defeat, on the other hand, then you're then thinking, right, maybe you've got a negative slant on things and did we do enough? Then we're questioning, obviously, the process of the week. So, yeah, it's pretty much nonstop, I think, as a coach. And having been on the inside, what were the sort of secrets of uh, Steve Cooper and the staff last season? Because it was an amazing turnaround. Yeah, I just think number one, and I think that it's always number one for me, is is being a decent guy, being a good person, communication skills, having an empathy with the players and an understanding of, of where they're at, players and staff, by the way. Um, you know, I know people say open door policy, but... It was that, you know, we'd speak with the players um, all the time. Office door always open for chats. And we did loads of individual stuff uh, with the players, individual meetings. The, you know, the um, analysis detail was excellent with with Steve Rands leading that department. So, you know, graphically, everything was was spot on. Meetings were, were you know, obviously great detail in it, but good graphics and good information. But, you know, the number one, the, the real number one is just how he is as a, as a person. For me personally, when at times this season I've been questioning what I'm going to be doing next, it's just someone that you sit sat opposite you, the manager of the football club, completely gets it, completely supports you, makes you feel comfortable in your environment. And if you got that, then you're, you know, you're well on the way to to creating a, a good culture at the club. Yeah, so I suppose it's easy to forget that, isn't it? As we get more data, more tech, more analysis, but then it all comes back to that relationship piece, doesn't it? Really, still. Well, if you've not got that bit, then, in my opinion, you, you're going to struggle. Yeah. You know, if if you're not that got got that ability to connect and and speak with players and, and staff at a level, and then it's going to be a really difficult experience for you because that still for, still for me is the, is the number one is, you know, having that ability to build relationships. And then by the way, once you've built those relationships that that allows you to challenge a little bit more, mm. that allows you to maybe, you know, get stuck into a player just a little bit more when they know it's coming from a good place and you've built that relationship then it actually allows you to, you know, to, to have those difficult conversations. Quick one, but a lot of people ask me, what's the difference between a first team coach and an assistant? Is it very similar or the same? Um, I think it can be, I think the difference can be massive. You know, some assistants will lead 
uh, we'll lead a lot of the stuff, we'll lead the tactical side, we'll lead training sessions, we'll plan all the training sessions. Um, and some first team coaches might literally be balls, bibs and cones and just be out there. More often than not, that might be a younger one that's sort of just getting their first experience of coaching. Um, but over, what I've seen, it's, it's quite a similar role in a way that you kind of share the workload. You know, you might have day after a game, me and Alan Tate at Forest, for argument's sake, sort of this season, we might share that entire session and Steve will observe, he will have a couple of chats with maybe a couple of the players that have started the game the previous day on the sideline. He might serve in and just have an input when he wants. And then as you're getting closer to the game, more often than not these days, the manager will take that tactical element of the session. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it can be such a massive uh, difference in the roles and responsibilities, but I think what is crucial is that those roles and responsibilities are clear from the outset, you know, that clarity of roles um, in who's doing what. A lot of it you learn on the job, if I'm honest, when you become first team coach, you just got, you get a feel for plugging little gaps that need to be, that need to be plugged and giving certain information to them, smelling what, I think a lot of it, again, I think a lot of it is the feel as well, that self-awareness as a coach in what man, what moves a manager in today, do I need to back off, do I, does he need that bit of support on the sideline, is sort of knowing where you're at in the organisation, you know, if the manager's out there with the assistant, do you need to be up there as well? I, I never think it looks good when you've got too many members of staff on the touchline shouting, or, you know, it's just, yeah, it's, almost, it's hard to say it's a sixth sense, but I think if you've got a real good self-awareness and can sense certain aspects of it as you go along, because I've got to be honest, when I got my first first team coaches while reading with Steve Clark, I didn't really have a clue what I was doing. I'd done my badges. I'd, I'd, you know, coached in the afternoons at my previous clubs, getting my sort of hours in and practicing. But when that first session and that first day arrives and your first team coach and it's going then, get the lads in, 24, 25 of the lads, explain the session, get it organised, get everyone in, in position when the lads are talking and then they're turning around, don't know what team they're in, don't know what the rules are. All of that sort of stuff is, is, is in a way learning on the job. It's getting that experience, it's getting that practice in, it's making your mistakes, it's having the right manner with the players because it does come a point where you do have to kind of draw that line in the sand and, and get after a few and and maybe lose your head a little bit. That's that's natural. Um, but yeah, a lot of that comes with experience and, and a real kind of self-awareness, in my opinion. We're having quite a big debate about that at the moment on our Twitter about top players going into sort of quite top coaching jobs straight away. Um, mm. Where do you stand on that? Does Is there a lot of value to be had from having had a top playing career or is it totally different being a coach? It is totally different. You know, you can be the best player in the world or, you know, the best talker on the pitch as a player, but no one can prepare you for delivering a meeting in front of 25 senior players or that first session when you've got to get it organised and you've got to, you've got to deliver with like an authority and, and a knowledge because... You know, you can be the best player in the world. And I've, you know, fortunately for me, I've had a, I've always gone into jobs with certain level of respect from the players because of the level I've played at. But if your sessions are, are poor and, you you know, you're not delivering the right information and you're disorganised, it's very quickly, you know, especially these days, it's very quickly can unravel and... <laughs> It can be difficult, so that's why I always think that like, the badges, although it's a long process, you know, your, your B, your A, and then your pro license. I think it's crucial in your knowledge of at the at the beginning of it, your organisation, how practices flow, 
um, the structure of sessions and then further down the line, more the leadership stuff, you know, I think it's crucial going into, going into management. Um, I've obviously been lucky that I've worked with top, top operators with, you know, Steve Clark, who's methodical with, and, and part of that, you know, we laugh about it now. Me and Steve was when I'd go out and set his sessions up, he would come out, he'd move a cone one or two inches. And when he used to do it at the start, I was like, the imposter syndrome kicking in. I'm useless. Was that right? He's not happy with it. But by the end with Scotland, I used to just tell him just to, just stay out of the way. Let me set up, you know, you yeah. and John Carver, go and, uh, go and have a cup of tea, kind of <laughs> leave it to me. So totally relaxing that. But at the start, it was, you know, it was difficult. But most people now, most coaches now have got the templates, have got the organisation of sessions, how it flows. So you practice one, practice two, three, and then we're going to finish here. So that's almost your, you know, your standard you know, you'd like to think now your basic, basic practice is then what you deliver in that session. Another thing people have said to me is wondering whether coaching is a profession worth going into now, because people get a bit disillusioned when they see some of the pay, even if they've been in the game for mm. several years as a coach, you know, and they say, is it worth it? Is it, is it a good profession to be in now? I think there's a couple of, there's a couple of points. It's, I think if you love the game, I think for sure, you know, if you still want to be involved in football and and love and love the game, then then definitely, obviously, you've got to be prepared. I think now to to start at the bottom again, you know, to maybe get your foot in the door and coach, you know, in academies or foundation bits and pieces that are not paying anything. You know, get your practice in in the evenings. That might be getting your foot in the door at a football club and then you can kind of work your way up and, and find your way. The, the pay is an issue, I think, especially sort of academy levels and below. I think if you're married and you've got kids, when you look at the pay that some of these roles are, it, it's, it's difficult. So I think you've seen it can be more of a younger man or women's um roles to get into that maybe have not got kids and responsibilities that weekends are fine can work Saturday and Sunday can do evenings during the week I think it's more difficult when the responsibilities uh, do come to you know one to to live and, and to support the family in that way so yeah there are a lot of issues around sort of getting in and being prepared to get in at a certain level and and, and work your way up. But I always say to players, now you, you often get your first job in coaching now as a player. Yeah. Can you now show that interest in training sessions? Can you ask questions? Can you be a good person around the training ground? Show respect to everybody? Because ultimately that's how I got my first couple of big coaching roles was Steve Clark straight from playing, straight into coaching in that summer. Leave Reading, straight in with Roy Hodgson at Crystal Palace because how I operated as a player. You can't be, say, a certain type of character as a player in a negative way and then leave the game and think that you're going to get a job. It's just not going not gonna to happen. Get your first coaching jobs or jobs in football when you're playing. And you have worked under some really good managers as well, haven't you? Looking back, uh, Steve Clark, Roy Hodgson, Steve Cooper, Chris Hewton as well. But being totally honest with you, if it wasn't those type of people and those people, I, I don't think I would have, I wouldn't have gone into those roles. You know, Steve had massive respect uh, for him as a, as a coach and a person, um, like the way he worked. I enjoyed his company, so was in. Roy, amazing. You know, took my game, you know, I was, I think, 30 when he came in at West Brom and carried on learning. And again, enjoyed the company, good person. I really want to work with him. Um, then a couple of little roles. I'd say, if, actually, after Crystal Palace, a few months down the line, I went in and helped my mate out at AFC Wimbledon. Uh, Simon Bassey took over caretaker for a month. 
it was just down the road again and and that was really refreshing really refreshing to drop into that level to see everyone mucking in to see all the staff that were doing two three four jobs around the training ground young players that were asking good questions wanting help wanting work wanting your experiences so that was a real refreshing period of, of coaching for me that was and yeah, um, yeah. And then after all of that, Chris, so I was just doing the Scotland role solely for, for a period of time. And then Chris rung and, and again, always got on great with Chris, respect for him as a person and his coaching career, Nottingham Forest, huge club potential. And that was, that was it again. So it's always got, for me, it has to be the right people that I'm working with and feeling valued or, or I won't bother. And that's, you know, there's been a couple of moments in my coaching career where that's not always been the case. Yeah. And how did Roy respond when you went in to tell him you were stepping down at Palace because of mental health issues? Because people might see him as old school because of his age. He was great, fully supportive, surprised, because I think you often find with these sort of situations and around mental health, when you actually explain it to someone, they're, they're, can't believe it like the surprise in how you come across and how you operate how you do your work no one would you almost become a master of putting on the mask so I think it was a complete shock to everyone you know I didn't really know how I was feeling what I was kind of going through at that time and but obviously disappointed when I did step aside but you know constant dialogue still you know still messages sort of going backwards and forwards since I left the club and you know, other roles that I've taken on and when he's gone on to do, you know, the brilliant job that he was doing at Palace, I'd always send a message of support after results and 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 not so I think that's the important thing as well. It's not always after wins, by the way, that you need to kind of message or speak to people. It's often after the defeats. I had an interesting I was involved in an interesting chat with a, a manager yesterday and he said exactly the same thing when you're winning, your phone's blowing up. When you're losing, you don't hear from anyone. I want to hear from people when I, <laughs> when I'm, it's not going so well, we are getting beat. Um, so sometimes that can be the case is checking in with people when things aren't going so well, especially, especially in coaching staff is coaching staff. Have you had people getting in touch with you already? So we want to use your services. We've been crying out for this. Got a couple of events that look like they could be happening in September, you know, presenting a, a couple of big organisations. Um, yeah, I've had some contact, not just the last few days, but ongoing contact with the PFA. They were brilliant when I needed that bit of help and support and rung the helpline and did get that support. And yeah, I plan to, you know, have meetings. I've got one penciled in with the Premier League just to present what I've been through and the experiences uh, ongoing course with the LMA. I uh, know a couple of the guys at the LMA really well. And again, uh, we'll be having a sit down and, and just the chat, just for my knowledge as well, as much as anything to see what is in place and, you know, what can be done to support, to help and, and what are the challenges involved. So yeah, there's a few, you know, a couple of big agencies have, have been in touch as well. Um, about potentially doing bits of work with with players that they've got on their books. So it's been quite a wide variety of of opportunities and some interesting conversations that need to be had. I was just going to ask a little bit about your playing career, actually. Um, yeah. What What was the the best point in your playing career? Which Which bit did you enjoy the most? Uh, probably two seasons jump out, especially three. Still, the highlight would be playing at the World Cup. Uh, 2002 with with the Republic. That's still the highlight. But obviously, as a young player, you think you'll have the Euros two years after. I'll have another World Cup, and doesn't doesn't work that way. So that's still the excuse me. That's still the pinnacle. Two seasons probably spring to mind be when we won the league with Millwall in. Right, test me now. I think it was oh. 203 you might have to <laughs> have to check that one because uh, a lot of it blurs into one so when we won the league with Millwall got promoted to the 
championship and then got to the playoffs the following season. But probably my standout season would be when we finished sixth in the Premier League with Blackburn, you know, because that was a difficult first 18 months of the club with all of that, you know, all of the bits that I've been speaking about, anxiety, the imposter syndrome, beating myself up, the, you know, don't make a mistake, you know, almost the fear for that 18, but then scored that sort of wonder goal against Wigan and that sort of, sort of the season after that went from strength to strength. So finished sixth in the league, centre midfield in the Premier League, started 33 league games and that would be the one season where I think everything clicked. But, you know, in the space of the next two months, it was just a, it was a misery for the next three seasons pretty much with all the injuries. Um, but some real big highlights there. But yeah. obviously they... You know, when I look back at the careers, I think there's probably more downs than I than I did have ups. And talking about those highlights, were you able to enjoy them at the time as you were living them? Um, probably not, because as a young player, again, you're kind of a little bit blasé and a, you know naive into well, this is kind of this is how it's going to be. This is what football football's all about. You've maybe not suffered or gone through the experiences that can chip away at that enjoyment and, and fun. Um, but we did have some good times. I've been lucky that I've been involved in teams and squads that have had good, good uh, environments in it, good connections with the players. We obviously back in the day used to love a night out or two as well, you know, especially the Blackburn group and Millwall, that's for sure. Um, so yeah, we, we did enjoy some good times. Um, but probably when I look back at it, I just didn't enjoy the playing playing side in, in general enough or nowhere near enough. When I look back and can't come away from it saying, oh, I absolutely love that. I'm actually not sure whether I could go through all those experiences again, being totally honest. If someone said to me, right, you can go back to the beginning and do it exactly how you did it the first time, I'm not sure... I'm not sure I could go through that again. I think that's a common theme again, isn't it? Because we did a podcast with Russell Martin and he was saying fear is coached into people. You know, when I sort of signed for West Brom, probably that season that I left Blackburn, it was it was almost survival mode for the last five years. Obviously, you've got your own responsibilities and family to support as well. So you maybe keep signing that extra year's contract. But, you know, I was sort of going out onto the pitch just to almost to survive and do a job and just to fill a gap. A lot of that's in your own head because that doesn't happen in the Premier League. You can't, unless you're actually doing a job, then you're not going to play. You get found out pretty quickly. But in my own mind, it was just don't get injured, do a job, you know, survive through this game rather than going into games thinking about, right, make a real impact in the game, you know, go and enjoy it, go and have fun. It was just, going into most of these games in the, in a negative frame of mind. And 2002 World Cup, was that the one in uh, Japan and Korea? The uh, Roy Keane World mm. Cup? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So interesting um, experience all round, actually. Great, great experience tournament. Obviously, the Roy bit at the, at the start as a young player, you kind of just no idea what's going on, really. You just kind of... Just looking around, thinking, "Wow!" Um, but it, all in all, it's—I was lucky in that as well. In that group of players, good leaders, good senior players in the in that Republic of Ireland squad, still in touch with, you know, a few of them today, and yeah, real, almost like how you want your atmosphere in a squad to be—that togetherness, that wanting to be there, uh, the social aspect of it, which obviously in that sort of era was was massive, not so much today. I think that's a little bit the reason why maybe, you know, there's this sort of thinking in football that some players and teams are not as connected with social media, with the phones, and are they socialising enough together? I think it's just, you know, it's just, I think it's gone down that way a little bit. What was that famous meeting like, uh, the Roy Keane and Mick McCarthy one? 
Uh, I think that's been, yeah, I'm not getting involved in that one. <laughs> that's been talking about, spoken about to death, that one. It was uh, eye-opening, yeah. It was eye-opening. Yeah. That's 20 years ago now, isn't it? But it's, I've yeah. different versions. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, do, who was the best player you played with for a final one? Um, internationally... I think in that spell, like, I think Roy, obviously, Roy would be one, would be one, and you know, Damien Duff in that spell was just unplayable when he got his move to Chelsea in that first couple of seasons at Chelsea. Club-wise, as a technician, definitely two guy. You know, should really, in my opinion, have played at the, you know, one of those big, big European clubs. You know, I could easily have seen him in a midfield. Uh, Milan or Real Madrid or Barcelona, one of those teams. Um, but we was lucky at Blackburn. We was lucky. We had players at the top of their game at that time, Santa Cruz and Craig Bellamy, Benny McCarthy in his first season after moving to Blackburn. David Bentley was incredible for a couple of seasons. Um, so, yeah, you asked for one. I think I've given you about 10 there. So that's yeah. probably... That's pro- Probably there. And for, in terms of professionalism and just from a different point of view, probably Brad Friedel, yeah. you know, in terms of longevity, um, preparing the body and the mind right into how he was as a professional was was incredible. No surprise that he went on to play, I think, into his, just into his 40s. And what made two guys so good? Because he's maybe one who didn't get the headlines at the time. Just a real gift of... I guess probably call it just mastery of the ball. Just a real, just a proper footballer. You know, something that you can't coach, something that is just a natural footballing ability and awareness on the football pitch, the ability to scan and check his shoulders, know exactly where he was and where he wanted to be before the ball even came into him. And then he obviously had the execution after that. And it was just which I used to be so jealous of players that it was just like a kick around in the park, not worried about anything. He's in the dressing room before a game doing a kick to a knee, shoulder, head, shoulder, knee, down the other side, not a care in the world. Absolutely not a care. Quick cigarette before the game as well. You know, so sometimes I was just, this is just too easy for you. Yeah. to just be there in the corner, just going through my own battles in preparing for a game. But just a natural gifted footballer that is impossible to coach into someone. Yeah. And he's probably one that wouldn't come up that well in the running stats. If you're looking at distances or sprints or, you know, high intensity. That's why I was in there with Robbie Savage, probably alongside him to do all of his running and just get him the ball. But you know what? Well, when you've got a player like that, happily do it, you know, get the ball to your best players. Um, and he was definitely one of them real just class acts on and, on and off the pitch. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for your time, Stephen. Cheers, Simon. Thank you for listening to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. We'll be back next month with another episode. In the meantime, you can follow our latest updates on the website and on Twitter at ground underscore guru.